So this new world is really interesting because there is no such thing as out of network anymore. It can only be in network. So doesn't that mean that we have no negotiating leverage anymore? Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Mo Azam. Dr. Azam is a physician anesthesiologist, trained anesthesiology critical care at Johns Hopkins, and he's now practicing in Florida and is very involved in leadership as it relates to policy governance, liaising in DC, and helps physicians of his specialty be forward-thinking and anticipating important changes coming down the pike from our friends in Washington. So Dr. Azam, thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. For starters, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about your career and kind of what has brought you to this point? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Jersey and uh, went to med school up there and uh, did my anesthesia training at Hopkins, as you mentioned. I came to sunny Florida, been here about 18 years, participated uh, in the governance uh, and leadership of my practice, quality committee, started uh, and headed up the uh, liver transplant anesthesia program here. Participated in everything from the Florida Society and their legislative affairs, as well as the ASA and their national legislative affairs. So got me involved in uh, a lot of this surprise medical billing legislation from an advocacy standpoint from our profession. Uh, Helped, uh, I think, in the last year, year and a half, our practice try to uh, prepare for what's coming now in January. And obviously, this is a very interesting time. So when this episode is released, we'll be immediately after the Surprise Billing Act goes live on January 1st, 2022. So tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, so it's been a really interesting process here, uh, watching the sausage get made, uh, legislative uh, channels. Let's take this back a a moment. I was having a a beer with one of my my older colleagues who's retired now. And when I joined the practice, it was a, you know, a a pretty well-functioning business. You know, you came in, you did your cases. There was a leadership team that was running the business of the practice, uh, back office management, like like many independent practices. But he kind of, uh, historical perspective around that is when he joined the practice in the uh, late 80s, no business team, just a couple of anesthesiologists. You actually applied for privileges at the hospital. And if the hospital folks liked you, made an introduction to the chairman of the department, who was just another independent anesthesiologist, and he put you on the schedule and you started taking call. <laughs> they eventually uh, figured out that, well, they ought to bill for their cases, but they all did it independently and they shared a biller. And this biller said, well, Dr. Uh, Dr. X, uh, what do you want to charge? And he goes, coming out of residency, what do you mean want to charge? Like, what am I supposed to charge? Well, you know, some of the other folks charge X. So he said, well, I'll charge X plus $1. And uh, so you had a paper anesthesia record and you scribbled in all your case information and he stapled a three by five index card onto that with his name, the start time and end time of the case and his rate. I'm just going to throw a hypothetical number out there. If the other people were charging 60 bucks, it was $61. Sent it to the biller and the biller sent it to the insurance company and he got paid $61 per unit for his case. So an interesting perspective of where things started. And then uh, this whole issue of insurance companies and networks 
and needing to be part of a network came about. So uh, basically, uh, you know, you've got insurance companies that want all the anesthesiologists, you know, surgeons, or anything else in that in that geography or in that hospital to get paid the same and to submit all their bills collectively. And uh, they say, well, why don't you join our network? It's not going to be sixty one dollars; it'll be fifty seven dollars. But you get to see all of our patients that are in our network. And some of these insurance companies have big plans, right? They might be employing all the teachers in Orlando or Disney, or they have all the employees of another major employer. And so in the trade-off, if you're an independent surgeon or a family care doc, you get to see all those employees, right? That have that employer's insurance, which is purchased by a private company, United, Aetna, or whatnot, and they bundle them all together at a little bit of a lower rate, but you get it up on volume. Now, over time, insurance companies started to narrow their networks and they excluded a lot of people. You've got insurance, I've got insurance, no idea if Surgeon X or Hospitalist Y or Cardiologist Z is in that network. I mean, you can go on their website today, it'd be really hard to still find out accurately, right? And so they play games and they negotiate and they say, well, we don't, uh, we're not going to offer you $57 anymore and it'll be $50 next year. And you say, well, I don't want to be in your network anymore. And if you're not in their network, they would pay you back to your usual and customary rate. Ultimately, that would give them a bit of a problem because their customers, again, those employers couldn't go to those doctors. So this was a fair, independent, arm's length negotiation over a price of what they're going to pay you in exchange for the volume they're going to get you. So this new world is really interesting because there is no such thing as out of network anymore. It can only be in network. So doesn't that mean that we have no negotiating leverage anymore? Interesting. I think a lot of the implications of this, uh, well, they're being tested right now in court. <laughs> <laughs> So for anybody listening, uh, I would encourage you to check out the YouTube version of this conversation because Dr. Azam is going to share some slides. And also he's going to be doing a, a deeper, more technical dive at the upcoming Advanced 2022 Conference in Texas, formerly known as the ASA Practice Management Conference. So he's going to be referring to some slides where he's going to share some data. And if you want to see the optics on that, go to check us out on YouTube or check out the show notes, apmsuccess.com slash 126. So what, uh, what are the implications of this new No Surprises Act as it relates to the specialty of anesthesiology? Yeah, so if it's okay, I can uh, put up a couple of these slides and we can talk about uh, how this looked, a little bit of the, uh, where all this came from. And just to be, uh, just to be fair, uh, I'm only expressing my own opinions as a physician anesthesiologist and uh, not of my employer or not of uh, the societies in any way. Anything uh, you, know, you need to look at for your practice should be run by your own legal teams and uh, and, uh, and counsel. One of my colleagues took this picture, as we all do at these, uh, at these uh, national presentations and said, you know, what's going on with this surprise medical billing legislation? This was about a year and a half, two years ago. And all these ideas were being thrown out there. So if there's no such thing as out of network, what happens to all the anesthesiologists, radiologists, other hospital-based specialties if a patient comes in and they're, uh, you don't participate in their insurance. Well, the rules were like, well, we could bundle everything together. And basically that means a single bill. So the insurer would pay a single bill for everything from the hospitalist to the surgeon, to the radiologist, the lab fees, to the anesthesiologist, 
And then you all figure out how to fight over that. Some uh, very important think tanks out there, Brookings Institute and American Enterprise Institute were behind a lot of this push. In a way, it really strongly enforces uh, a single payer world. The single payer though, isn't the government, it's an insurance company. And so uh, really problematic in a, number of, in a number of ways. Benchmarking bills were another one. I say, look, if the government pays you X, well, why shouldn't everyone pay you the same? And Medicare uh, or percentage of Medicare was thrown out there. It's really horribly uh, disingenuous when a company like United that's got $300 billion in revenue, makes $13 billion a quarter, is attempting to pay off of essentially what's a government rate. And as we all know, in the world of anesthesia, the government pays us about 25 cents on the dollar compared to private insurers. So all they would be doing is driving all the anesthesiologists, anesthesia providers down to something that's completely unsustainable. Network matching was another one. Anesthesia groups are independent. Um, Some are employed by their uh, hospitals. Some are actually employed by uh, insurance companies. And some have uh, come together to become larger entities. And network matching meant uh, you'd have to be in the network of the hospital. So in that instance, um, it again uh, creates some artificial uh, friction between the anesthesia groups and the hospitals because the hospital could maybe be in network and get great rates for their emergency room care or their uh, inpatient care. They they would essentially uh, take a hit on the anesthesia services because that's not where they're making their money. So ultimately, this was all settled in arbitration. Arbitration meaning back to some sort of a system that's uh, independent, fair, third party that decides, do you get insurance companies X offer of $60? Or uh, do you get what you've been fairly negotiating in the past for $75, for example? There's some uh, key uh, leaders that were uh, in in the Senate and in the House uh, that uh, were very much behind this uh, arbitration uh, strategy. Now, state law is interesting. State law uh, has been passed in a number of places, New York being one of them that's on the slide, Texas being another, Georgia being another that's really physician friendly. And by physician friendly, I mean fair, fair, where where a 30 person uh, anesthesia practice can negotiate on even grounds with a $300 billion revenue United Healthcare, because they can offer a rate and the insurance company can offer a rate and an independent third party arbitrator can say, this is a fair rate. Unfortunately, this is where we end up, right? Um, And the ASA sent out a survey in 2020 and again in 2021, and they found that these insurance companies are really manipulating the landscape in anticipation of the surprise medical billing law that they were trying to pass and ultimately the one that did pass. 42% of anesthesiologists were being kicked out of network in 2020 in COVID right? The pandemic, the heroes of the first front line and the uh, uh, first responders and you know, the guys that are suiting up in these airtight suits and trying to take care of uh, COVID trach patients, right? 2021 uh, is even worse. Up to 70% of respondents in this survey were being kicked out of network, mostly by United, but some of the other players as well. Many of them, when they'd just gotten a network deal signed by these, by these payers. And what are they doing here? They're trying to drive the median down because the, ultimately the new law um, says that anything other than the median, you guys have to prove your case. You doctors have to show me with resounding evidence why you should get paid anything other than the median. So if they kick out anybody that's paid above the median today, 
the new median is just a lot lower. So how do you defend this? Um, well, you got to arbitrate, and arbitration can take into account quality. Obviously, your, uh, your, your practices, uh, legislative and advocacy awareness and infrastructure knowledge of, of the intricacies of the law, probably a substantial investment in IT. You're going to have to be really nimble with your billing. Can't do what my partners were doing before, what I was doing before when I started my practice 18 years ago. A paper anesthesia record that I shoved in my uh, briefcase, turned it into my office when I got back to the office later in the week maybe sat in a file for a day or two, got to a biller or sat in their pile for a day or two. It's not going to work in this new in this new landscape. These bills have to get turned in very, very quickly. And then a lot of folks have sometimes bare bones, low cost, right? We're all cheap. <laughs> we don't want to spend a lot on overhead. So we outsource or insource to a pretty simple billing coding uh, RCM shop, turn those bills in. That's not gonna. That's not gonna cut it in in, in the future. Um, you're really gonna have to get to a very sophisticated billing operation. And then there's a there's a new thing. Uh, who's your mediation, dispute resolution, and arbitration team? To my knowledge, I'm really curious in the comments what people send to you. Does anyone ha else have an outsourced version of this? If you're a small practice, we've insourced it with my practice, but you're gonna have to build that up, or you have to find somebody to do it for you. So practice has been preparing for this, uh, I guess, uh, practices that have been uh, aware of, I think, the really substantial impact to your business, your livelihood, have been investing in this over the past year in a variety of these different ways, right? Talking to patients, hey, you're going to get kicked out of network, right? We're going to get kicked out of network. Um, you may not you know, be able to see your favorite surgeon who works with us at the surgery center or at the hospital. And we want to minimize the burden on to the patients. So we would never balance bill folks. Um, there have been bad actors out there, physician groups, small, large, um, and they balance bill patients. And when they went out of network, we never did that. I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't do that either. But we want to make sure the patients are reassured on that. We want to make sure it's very customer service focused. Coalition building, the uh, ER groups, radiology groups in your, in your location. In your hospital, your hospital itself in the facility to let them uh, know that you're very concerned about this going forward. Obviously, the employers in your geography, you know, if you're in a, in a practice in Kansas City or in uh, Newark, New Jersey or Miami, you better find out who some of the biggest employers are there, where most of your patients come from, and start reaching out to them and saying, listen, you may be signed up with an insurance company that might be putting a lot of doctors out of network and therefore out of the reach of your employees. And then preparing for that arbitration, we'll touch upon that a little bit. And payer outreach, really having a dialogue with these payers and communicating and, and documenting that dialogue about how you've been a good faith in-network provider with fair negotiations over many years and uh, how you'd like to stay there. Sorry, I've been talking a bit. I'll turn it back to you, Justin. Yeah. So why don't you uh, take a, a minute and just describe sort of what arbitration means? And, and we actually, we talked about this back in episode 119, unpacking the arbitration process, but maybe put us in the sort of the position chair as it relates to, you see a patient and they're, you know, you're, the, the payment is such that you have to resort to arbitration and the resources required and some of the metrics and the sort of the variables in that equation. All right. I'm at the surgery center and I do a shoulder scope, the anesthesia for that case. I turn it in and goes to our billing office. Our billing office uh, turns it into 
let's say it's an Aetna, Aetna patient, uh, they submit that bill um, and I get paid for it at uh, the rate that we had uh, agreed on with Aetna and gotten a contract in. This new world, as you just saw, 70% of respondents in that survey were kicked out of network. So let's say that example United has kicked you out of network. So you still see that shoulder scope. You take care of that patient. You submit that bill to United now and you're out of network. Well, there is no such thing as out of network. So they pay you what's uh, going to now be called the QPA. It's a qualified payment amount. It's an interim payment. And what they're trying to do in the final rulemaking process, and by the time this airs, hopefully, I think we'll have clarity around that. Unfortunately, as we're recording this in late December, um, it's going in a really bad way. And uh, that QPA uh, is probably going to be the final payment. And that final payment is what they deem as a median rate for everyone in your area. Uh, you're based in uh, Portland, right? So uh, United would look at all the contracts they had in the Portland geography and pay you the median on that. Now you have to defend that and say, well, I'm actually better than median, right? I mean, all your uh, physician uh, listeners out there, cover your eyes. If you are better than 50th percentile of doctors out there, raise your hand, right? So everyone raises their hand, right? Because which amongst us would say we're, worse than 50th percentile, prove it. And so this is on this, on this screen, uh, what I've got is where we started with all this quality. So prove to me that you've got a better practice than folks in your region, in your state, maybe nationally. And a lot of us uh, use uh, ASA or the Anesthesia Quality Institute or NACOR to submit our quality metrics on many uh, practices out there, submit to third-party independent quality data warehouses. And you try to send all this uh, macro, MIPS measures, and everything else. When you get that back, you also got to figure out where you are according to others. And this is one of the things I just uh, illustratively put up there, um, kind of representative of uh, one of our sister practices. But look, you know, they're actually taking care of uh, a lot of patients. And let's look at the reported uh, intraoperative deaths, reinnovations, blood utilization at their hospital, their length of stay at their hospital versus the one across the street for similar DRG codes. And if that's a 5% length of stay, because you've got a phenomenal anesthesia group, what does that translate to a commercial saving, uh, commercial insurance plan? So we actually looked at that for um, a sister practice, and it was a very substantial amount of money. It was in the millions, uh, simply a 5% length of stay difference. Uh, maybe you're doing outpatient total joints. That's a lower cost of care, right? So that's a benefit. So all of these things are really quality in a lot of different ways. Are you taking care of uh, more uh, patients in underserved geography? I'll give you the example again of Portland or Orlando. You know, we've got a knife and gun club here too. You know, even in the uh, house of mouse here, Orlando is a big city. So maybe you're taking care of a lot of those traumas and things like that that come in. Have that, have that information readily available and for your practice. And are you doing a lot of high acuity cases, transplants, cardiac cases? neuro and so forth. What did you do uh, during COVID, for example, all your clinical protocols, ERAS protocols, and so forth. So really got to start with that because we have to defend that we're better than median based on that, at least as what the law intended when it was written. So I think we, what we try to do, and uh, what, I, what I'd say for a lot of practices out there, if you invest in this, it's going to be across these domains, right? Quality, better outcomes, and lower costs. 
scarcity, those high acuity cases, underserved geography uh, patients, satisfaction, maybe it's your uh, HCAP scores, or if you've got an outsourced uh, patient satisfaction program, uh, we have that in, our, in, uh, in ours, our patients uh, get uh, surveys. And a, a third party uh, program called Survey Vitals that, that gets us patient satisfaction uh, information that far exceeds HCAPs. And are you doing this at scale? And what's the size of your practice? Because unfortunately, insurance companies always negotiate, they give better rates uh, based on scale, right? They give better rates to a big practice with 200 and 250 clinicians as opposed to two doctors. So, uh, as you mentioned, here's a law that got passed. So you get paid that uh, median and network, and otherwise you could use this IDR mechanism, uh, independent dispute resolution, to say why you're better than median. And so what we just touched on is very intentional. It's because it's in the law. The provider's training, experience. So you know your, your, your fellow doctors in your practice, maybe you got more birth certified folks, pediatric cardiac folks, you name it. The patient's acuity and the complexity of uh, furnishing that item or service. So I'm sitting in a really nice ASC doing bread and butter ASA1s. What this law basically says is that if I'm at a big practice and I've got hospital-based stuff and trauma and so forth, and I've got ASA3s and 4s, I can actually use that information to say why I should get paid accordingly or better. Quality, very, very broadly worded. So we touched on a couple of those things in the prior slides. Figure it out for yourselves how you might defend your practice and your your fellow colleagues in your in your in your practice um, uh, based on quality. So a couple other intricate things in the law, and uh, there was a bit of a, a carrot, a reward uh, offered to folks that have been good actors. Again, there's been bad actors here, folks that went deliberately out of network, and insurance companies that kicked people deliberately out of network. So prior contracted rates during the previous plan uh, four years is a, is a um, something that you can put in there. Again, I touched on that earlier, documenting all of your communications with these payers to say that you've been in network and you are honestly and uh, uh, fairly negotiating with them, you know, asking for your usual COLA, you know, escalator next year and not asking for a 20 or 30 percent increase. Timely bills. And that's that the uh, clinician, the practice has to submit the bill within 30 calendar days. So, again, I took care of that shoulder scope. I can't have those bills sitting in a pile in my anesthesia office at the hospital and never get them to our billing company. So uh, again, a lot of those investments on, on quick turnaround and things like that. So I submit that bill in your example as I take care of uh, that patient and it's a, it's a United patient. I'm out of network because they put me out of network. And this is the crazy, complicated pathway that my practice now has to navigate to get paid. And here's the interesting part. And if your listeners had one takeaway on this, it's not just about getting paid either. This is how you negotiate your contracts with insurance companies going forward, because they have no incentive to negotiate with you fairly. They get paid and they pay you the median. And if you want anything other than that, normally you'd have that negotiation with them. You'd sit down, you'd say, I should get paid $10 more than the median because I'm a great practice, complicated cases. Tomorrow, they're like, you're out of network. Here's the median. This is how you get there. So submit your bill. You The plan has 30 days to pay you. Well, that's actually a good thing. Of course, they're not going to pay you or they're going to pay you just a QPA. And then you got to open up a negotiation period. But this is a separate 
element in arbitration. This is negotiations and mediation, potentially. If you try to do that, maybe they give in. Most likely they don't. They've got a four-day window to submit to arbitration with all of the supporting materials we just talked about. How you're better, quality you had, outcomes, patient satisfaction, underserved geographies, case complexity, on and on and on. And an arbiter gets this. And an arbiter decides, yeah, you're right. Or no, the insurance company is right on this one. And they pick a winner and a loser. A loser pays, by the way. A loser pays the arbitration. So if you don't do this right and you haven't done a sophisticated uh, investment in this, not only do you not get paid what you want to get paid, but you also have to pay the arbitrator's fee, which could be a couple hundred bucks. Now, if you win and they say, yeah, you're totally right. You're a good practice. Take care of complicated cases. There's a lot of value in uh, the quality and so forth. Arbiter can also decide what the ruling is. Let's say you sent in for 75 bucks. United said you deserve 45 bucks. Arbiter says you win. They also have to pick what your rate is that they settle on. You don't win automatically at the $75 uh, amount. They can say, yeah, you win. I'll well, give you 65. So you still see tremendous erosion in your rates. And that's why this is really about your payer negotiations. Now, if you're a small practice and you got there, you lock, you're locked up for the next 90 days on the next bunch of shoulder scopes under that same plan. So your AR takes a massive impact here. And so you better do this right. You better be sure you can, you can succeed at this so you don't lose on the fees. And if you start losing here, all that means is that the insurance company gets to double down on the initial payment. And that becomes your new rate. So for people who are just listening, can you describe like, what is the total? I'm looking at this timeline that's got like 30 days, one to 30, 30 plus, and all these like cumulative, what's the total timeline that we're talking about here from when you do a case to when arbitration concludes? Yeah. So we're looking at 120 to 190 days potentially to have your AR locked up. And you're burning FTEs this whole time, paying someone presumably to navigate this process to create the infrastructure and implement it in your practice. And you're um, right, and you've locked up your your, your accounts receivable um, because you haven't gotten paid on the case you did 100 days ago. The other part of this that's really you know, challenging is you know a lot of us have uh, small practices, uh, a lot of folks out there with small practices that, and I'm part of a big practice, I should say, a lot of folks out there in small practices that uh, outsource to a billing company. You know, they they negotiated hey four percent of fee, right? Lean, low cost. So the problem with that is. This is not a lean and low cost process here, as you see across the screen. Billers all will probably submit a bill, and uh, you know, I don't know. Big practice does uh, 100 cases a day, 200 cases a day, 300 cases a day. And they're submitting all those bills every day. This could take hours, and so uh, how is that going to work going forward? So, is there anything? And maybe I'm just—I I, want to make sure that I understand what gets us to this point. So, if I'm an insurer, my my options. Previously, well, or, or maybe now, I guess it's, I can pay a negotiated rate with a physician's group, or I can essentially push them out of network, which is what we're seeing when contracts are terminated. And then the default is to the, the QPA. And so as an insurer, is there anything to prevent? You know, I'm just imagining I'm an insurer kind of looking at the distribution of here's all the doctors in my network, here's what I'm paying all of them. And I sort of map them on the x axis here and I, I got some on the left tail and some on the right tail and then I get the median in the middle 
what's to prevent me as an insurer from taking everything to the right of the median? It's like more than the qualifying amount and just saying X, 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 hack all these contracts. And in so doing, I'm sliding my median to the left. I'm paying all these people the qualified payment amount and saying, come and get your money and fight with me for 190 days in order to get it. Is there, is that, I mean, maybe that's what we're seeing. Justin, you are an insurance company executive. (laughs) (laughs) That is it. It is deliberate and it is not a sneaky underhanded trick. They are being extremely transparent that that's exactly what they're doing. There's been evidence submitted uh, to legislators, to state societies, national societies all across the country. The Blues did it in Michigan. Big insurers did it in North Carolina. They kicked out an independent practice. They're doing it to hospitals. You know, major systems have gotten kicked out of network because of, of, of all this. And uh, you know that, that uh, ASA survey that I said 70% of respondents said they've been kicked out of network. Half of those respondents are in small and middle-sized groups. They're not part of big enterprises. It's, a, it's just an actuarial analysis. They're looking at anybody above the median, pushing them out of network, driving that median down, and you have to defend across uh, this, this thing. Now, the arcane details of this law, it's a 500-page bill. Here's just a couple of highlights. If your practice um, and your leadership hasn't really invested in looking at how they're going to set up for this all this past year, well, you're already behind the eight ball. And I'm painting a grim picture, but I think uh, folks need to get, get on this really quickly. And here's why I'm painting a great picture, because just in the last couple of weeks, and I think uh, you might have seen this come across in uh, Becker's, was a Blue Blue Cross kicked out 55 practices in the state of North Carolina, radiology, anesthesia, all sorts of different folks, and exactly that bell curve and just dropping out a lot of the folks above it, specifically because they were, uh, and it explicitly stated that they're doing this because of no surprises that the federal law allows them to do it. And very, very transparent and honest in this letter that the QPA, the qualified payment amount, is essentially payment in full. And whereas Blue Cross may have previously negotiated that contract, they're basically now looking to bring that contract back in line with what they consider a reasonable market rate. They identified practices that they were above that, and they said, just based on that, we're knocking you out of network unless you take a big payment hit. They offered anywhere from 10 to 30% payment reductions as a generous offer for folks to renegotiate their contracts. And this wasn't contracts that are up and up for renegotiation. These are people that have active contracts, fair, independent, independently negotiated between two parties, including you know, these, these insurance companies that are making billions of dollars in profits in the pandemic and out of the post-pandemic. And basically, they say that this will help them result in savings to the benefit of their customers. Well, has an insurance company ever dropped their rates year after year after year because of the savings they achieve? No. And so this is this is really problematic. And, and this letter is just absolutely. I thought it was I thought it was a joke uh, when I saw it. Like people were like manipulating it, saying that it was from an insurance company. This is this is it. This was shared to all sorts of uh, societies. Uh, like I said, it put out there by Beckers because uh, it, it's really just flagrant, egregious manipulation, the law. There was another case recently that we were discussing before we hit record here. Out West, United Team Health, a judgment there that involved some of these same issues at play. Can you talk a little bit about sort of 
what we found there and what that shows as far as signs of the times? Yeah, well, it's kind of to what this is pointing to, that the significant savings are going to be a benefit to their customers. Well, they found that in that instance, the, the, the jury found that those savings were not being shared. United was uh, making a lot of money off of a shared savings program. But uh, I think there's something else in that, uh, in that case as it was uh, adjudicated. That also brings to light just really, I think, sinister actions on the behalf of big insurance. And that's the fact that they colluded uh, with um, some of these independent healthcare economic folks, uh, economists, uh, including Zach Cooper from Yale, published a, a big study in the New England Journal around all the bad actors out there blaming physicians for being out of network. And they basically completely uh, drafted, edited, and uh, looked at that paper and looked at uh, very independent when it was published. It was uh, shopped all around Congress as an example of all the egregious things that are being done out there and why this law needed to be passed. I think it's uh, shocking that uh, New England Journal hasn't published a retraction on that. I think it's uh, very, very telling that United's own executives testified under testimony, under, under oath, that that's exactly what they did. They helped draft the, uh, the health, health economics papers on this. So for anybody who's listening, there's a lot of important resources we're referencing. I'll get as many of these slides as Dr. Azam is willing to send over. We're also going to link to some of the articles discussing these recent judgments with United Team Health and the New England Journal of Medicine article just for anybody to refer to going forward. So apmsuccess.com slash 126, you'll be able to find all this stuff there. So Justin, how does a, a small practice survive? And that I think uh, you had asked me before on all of this. Like I'm painting a grim picture. Let me throw it back to you. Um, when you're talking to folks, what are you hearing out there? Are folks preparing for this in some way? Uh, it, it varies widely. I mean, as you're describing this, what I'm sort of wondering in my brain and something that I see in the pain, as far as the practice management stuff, I'm a little closer on the, the pain side of things. I see a lot more independent owner operator types and something like the MSO or IPA structure where there's some collective bargaining capacity. It makes me wonder if there's this new complicated infrastructure that's being created is there going to be either business opportunity or like are the societies going to band together? Maybe maybe there's something, some central something. Like, is there some support for physicians that's going to come? You know, the knight in white armor, or you know, whatever, <laughs> the the knight in shining armor, riding to the rescue to create some of this. Hopefully, a little bit turnkey. You know, you add another layer on top of your billing fee, and in exchange, you get the arbitration sort of built in. Is any of that? I mean, I don't know. That's that seems to me the only thing between independent practices and oblivion, based on this just crushing administrative burden that seems yeah. to be heaped on. The administrative them. burden is is profound. Um, I think two things you mentioned there. Pain uh, brought uh, something to mind for me. It's how they do this QPA, and I just pulled up this slide. This QPA is essentially uh, not just the median and networks uh, say for all the United plans in Portland. It's particularly for that insurance product, or maybe for the insurer, but uh, it, it uh, allows the, the rulemaking, the way it is phrased that just got passed a few weeks ago, essentially allows one pain doctor's rates to have equal bearing or weight in calculation of this uh, QPA as a big 200-person anesthesia practice or um, a hospital-employed anesthesia practice in that geography. So a pain doctor- Which neutralizes the, the bargaining power of the bigger groups. 
It does potentially. And the pain doctor, here's what's also more um, sinister the way the, the insurance companies can manipulate it. Pain, uh, to the pain doctor, they might offer a good rate on the pain procedures and say, hey, you know, part of this package means you, you're also negotiating anesthesia rates. I know you don't do anesthesia primarily, you do a lot of pain procedures, but uh, you know, $35 is the rate for your anesthesia charges. You don't do anesthesia, don't worry about it. That actually counts, um, even though that person does, doesn't actually do anesthesia because it's on, in their books as a contracted rate for anesthesia. Could they also do something similar to the hospital? Hospitals negotiate all of these rates in a package. Again, they make their money off of the inpatient stay. So and maybe they employ some uh, groups there, hospitalists or ER groups. But they'll actually negotiate and have rates for the whole spectrum of, of, of services. They might even have anesthesia rates there. The hospital which never does anesthesia by themselves. They outsource it to an independent group, for example, might have anesthesia rates on the books. And that's where this QPA becomes very interesting because this allows the insurance companies to manipulate it and say, here's all of our anesthesia rates. And it's blending in lots of stuff that isn't really being used. To, you know, people aren't submitting under uh, bills under those rates. Or it's taking in, well, obviously, counting one doctor the same as 200 in a different practice. And so I think that's very, very problematic in the way the law is. But now... The knight in uh, shining armor, unfortunately, um, for my conversations, uh, you know, been up there in D.C. and meeting with legislators on behalf of state and national societies and on, our, on my own practice. Some of the comments I've heard back are that, well, I don't think we're going to be able to really change the rulemaking as it's been done by these administrative agencies. It may be litigation. So as this airs in, in, in January, I hope there's something new. But uh, so far, um, as we're recording this in mid-December, there's been one lawsuit filed um, by the Texas Medical Association. We hope that ASA, AMA, and others also file because it's probably going to be litigation that's at least going to change this sinister uh, QPA manipulation. That still doesn't solve for navigating the world of arbitration. So I think you in part answered my question there, which is it seems like there's two options right now for physicians who hope to maintain economic viability. One is optimize the current system and learn how to, you know, navigate the arbitration process with some amount of efficiency and aptitude to be able to say, yeah, I'm the top decile, not the median, and to be paid commensurate with that. And the other is to through it sounds like litigation is the other mechanism to change the change the rules of the game to make it more sustainable for, you know, fair contracts to be negotiated. So is there is there anything else on that side of things as far as changing the rules or or trying to work you know collaboratively with legislators or whatever to to try to fix it well i think that there's a couple of other options right and one is i referred to on one of the earlier slides was coalition building right so reaching out to your hospitals look it's it's uh, going to be the insurance company is going to pit you against them if you're in an independent practice and uh, if they're going to be uh, if they're very very happy with your services they really need you guys it's, this is the time to make that case so that they come to your defense if uh, the insurance companies uh, bully you all around. Because we've seen this out, uh, this out, um, out there as well, where insurance companies will knock a practice out of network and the facility, hospital or surgery center will then say, well, I can't have you at our facility because you're out of network. And so what we'd rather see is those facilities turn around to the health system, sorry, to the insurers and say, I can't have you knocking our 
colleagues out of network. I need them. There's another part of this, um, and I think a lot of practices are not going to be able to be nimble enough and make the right investments to navigate this. And that's local leadership, folks that just uh, aren't watching your podcast, aren't going to the ASA practice management meeting, haven't been paying attention to this stuff. It's just seemed a lot of this out there all, all too often. What they'll do is turn around and say, well, hey, our rates got knocked down. We're going to go talk to the hospital to make us whole. And so they get their hand out for a stipend and subsidy support. And that's going to be pretty substantial, potentially. We've seen that uh, 70, 75% of practices out there already get some subsidy support for anesthesia services. Hospital margins, to be fair, are very, very thin in, in many circumstances. A lot of us uh, think that these uh, hospitals are doing really, really well. Well, their executives sometimes have very fancy offices, but the margins on these uh, on the business is very, very thin. And so if an anesthesia group goes there and says, I need another million dollars, $2 million, we saw a group that needed $6 million in Florida recently or more, the hospital is going to be like, well, why keep paying you that? Why don't I just employ you? And I think this is where this ultimately goes, that folks get employed, they lose their autonomy, they lose their practice because they're going to have their handout, or they're going to be essentially moving towards potentially independent practice by extenders and those kinds of models, because uh, it's just not going to be sustainable. You won't be able to pay a physician's income, a salary on on these kinds of rates. And so I think if uh, folks don't make a very substantial investment here, it it is going to be a very grim future. Might caveat that with where we started on this, which is when my partner came to my practice uh, and joined in the 80s and the three by five index card. All along the way, there have been substantial investments. So for that practice, our our, our legacy practice to have made huge investments and a fair contracting team and being in network and dealing with insurers, having our own billing and coding shop in-house and all of the things that went along the way, millions of dollars. This may be one of those quantum leap kind of uh, moments in the evolution of anesthesia practices. They're going to have to make a substantial investment here. So if I'm one of those physicians and I'm sort of staring at this and I want to work to make the investments you're describing. Can you give us maybe just a a couple ideas as far as here's the resources you need to throw yourself into to devour, internalize, and then implement in order to not become obsolete? I'm I'm really fortunate that our practice has done well over the last 18 years I've been in it. We did join with a number of other practices to become part of a larger entity. And it was uh, a physician-owned national practice where our physicians own half of uh, the equity even of of the the whole national practice. So we've had incredible physician leadership. I've had three colleagues and and our sister practices in in Florida that have been state society presidents and involved in the national society. Our sister practice in Texas, for example, has similar, including one of our, my partners there that sat on the uh, Texas uh, state house and in the national council of insurance uh, legislators. And so been very, very involved. So I think uh, being aware, doing the research, getting involved in your state and national societies, the ASA has a ton of resources on this, uh, is step one. Step two that we did is a tremendous investment in quality. And that's uh, not only submitting quality information off of every claim, every case that you do to the whatever quality uh, outsourced uh, third-party service or whether it's ASA, AQI or whatever vendor, not only submitting it, but also getting that information back 
and then investing potentially in consultants or database uh, analysis to look at how that compares to your geography and your state, for example, because you have to have not only your own quality information, but what's the benchmark average around you and, and, and in your area, for example. Quality was, uh, was advocacy important, quality really important. The next investment was in, it could be attorneys, advisors. Um, there's a number of folks that are always at the ASA practice management and the advisory space that would help guide you to uh, the right uh, arbitration setup. And uh, how are you going to submit your claims in that, in that world based on that quality information? Um, and how are you going to work with your billing company? You've got a really robust, uh, sophisticated, big outsourced billing company. You need to start talking to them about how they're going to handle these uh, situations if, if, that are out of network. Are they going to participate in that at all? Or is that up to you because all they're doing is submitting a claim? The other thing is if it's not outsourced, if it's insourced and it's your own billing practice or a shared billing company a, a couple, across a couple of practices, are they going to make some investments in this uh, to go forward? So I think those are the initial steps. Uh, we can sort of get all into the weeds because college level course on this and the doctoral level course on this, we could start talking about the difference between state plans and federal plans and state law and federal laws and the impacts there as well. I touched on that a little earlier. I think you know, for folks that are in New York and Texas and Georgia, for example, you're going to be far better off. Folks that are unfortunately in Michigan um, and California, they already know those state laws are horrific. The recourse is not even uh, this median. It's it's sort of a, off of a government a Medicare benchmark. So uh, they've, they've seen a lot of attrition and loss of uh, anesthesia providers, radiologists, and so forth, ER doctors in those states. You know. Dr. Moazam, thank you very much for lending your expertise to the APM Success Podcast. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. I appreciate it. I'm happy to always answer questions. And Justin, um, uh, I'll send you my contact information. Welcome to share it out with folks as well. And uh, for folks that will be at ASA meeting, we'll, uh, the practice management meeting, we'll see you all there. Again, happy to present uh, even, even more uh, of a deep dive into this. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.